Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Marketing is manipulation, but there are kind of ethical types of manipulation and and unethical. And I think the line is, if I engage in persuasive techniques that are designed to help you live your life better, make you wealthier, make you healthier, um, then that's, that's an ethical um, expression of, of persuasion. What isn't ethical is when you manipulate people for your benefit, but against their own interests. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't yet, listen to my recent conversations with doctor-turned-marketer Johnson Emmanuel and with leading authority on buying, selling, fixing and growing businesses, Michelle Seiler-Tucker, then do go check them out. But stay here first, listen to today's conversation first, then go and check those out. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Steve Jenko. He's a marketing innovator and entrepreneur, a management consultant and educator. Steve co-founded one of the first research firms devoted to applying neuroscience, social psychology and behavioural economics to the study of marketing and consumer choice. Today, he's an active educator and speaker, conducting seminars and workshops around the world and virtually, of course. Steve holds degrees from Stanford University and from the University of British Columbia. He's written two books, Neuromarketing for Dummies and Intuitive Marketing. In our conversation today, Steve talked to me about why marketers must ask new questions and conduct marketing in new ways. We talked about marketing through the entire customer journey as a way to build long-term relationships. And we talked about why understanding our dream customers and their behaviours is vital to good marketing. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Dr. Steve Jenko. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited today to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast from Sunnyvale, California in the USA, Steve Jenko, who's a managing partner at Intuitive Consumer Insights, and he's the lead author of Neuromarketing for Dummies and also author of Intuitive Marketing. 
welcome to the Innova Buzz podcast, Steve. It's a real privilege to have you here as my guest. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Jurgen. It's a pleasure to be here. And Will Leach, who was our guest on episode 399 of the Innova Buzz podcast, suggested that we have a conversation with you and introduced us. So big hello to Will. Yes, definitely. Will was our uh, resident genius at Frito-Lay. That's where I met him many years ago. I was working for a um, neuromarketing uh, research company, and he was one of the main uh, strategy guys there. And I got to I got to know him there, and then was very pleased to see his his book, his uh, a marketing to mind states book, and, mm. and he's been doing a terrific job with his new uh, consulting business and uh, um, doing a lot of good work for for marketing in general. Yeah, yeah, and and I loved exploring the whole idea of marketing to mind states with him, and and along that theme, I guess you you talk about intuitive marketing, and we'll dig into the book a little bit more, and and I like that you say that um, all marketing seeks to influence consumers, and intuitive marketing is the same, but it does so in a radically different way, and that's a, around aligning the consumer motivations and goals, and primarily in the service of their psychological needs rather than attempting to impose an immediate transactional goal on the consumers using kind of the traditional disruption tactics. So I'm really looking forward to digging into that. Before we start talking about all things marketing, though, let, let's find out what drives you and how that shapes what you do today. Well, um, I'm, I'm uh, at a point in my career where I've I've done a lot of different things um, over the years, and now I'm able to pretty much pick and choose the kind of projects that I want to get involved with. So it's a it's a really fun point, um, both in terms of my career, my personal growth, and also having kind of having the freedom to not be working for somebody else and. <laughs> not be carrying the water of a particular firm with a particular point of view. So I've uh, I've, I've enjoyed the last few years. I, as I was thinking about your some of your questions, uh, you know, you asked about background. Um, for what it's worth, for your for your listeners, uh, I don't know how many people have this kind of background, but I kind of describe my background as sort of a random walk through careers. Yeah. Um, I started off as a political scientist, and I spent 11 years uh, in political science uh, uh, and got a PhD in that field, but then um, uh, there weren't any jobs. It, it's a, a, a real problem in the United States that there's not much of a supply-demand uh, uh, relationship between uh, sending people off to graduate school and then finding jobs for them when they get when they get done. So I went into IT programming and management, and I did IT management at the university where I uh, where I got my degree, and I did that for eleven years. And then I got talked into becoming a management consultant. So I went off to what. KPMG at the time was an accounting firm that also had consulting. That was back in the U.S. when you could have your accounting and consulting together in one company. Um, and I started with them, and I did management consulting, and that also lasted about 11 years. And then um, 
through my partnership with the consulting company that I was working with at the time, we kind of stumbled upon this idea of neuromarketing. And we decided to take our consulting business and turn it into a neuromarketing business. And we uh, collaborated with some neuroscientists and neurologists and, and developed that business. And that was right at the start of neuromarketing. That was in 2005, 2006. And we went through the whole, uh, well, I'm going to call it kind of a horror show of the startup world, uh, you know, trying to find VC funding and trying to find clients and, sorry about that. Um, and eventually our company got bought by Nielsen, a big giant of the uh, consumer research world, and they kind of didn't know what to do with us. And hmm. uh, then I, I, I left that. It was, it was just kind of not going anywhere. And um, that's when I started writing. Uh, I start, first I wrote the, the Dummies book, and then I started working on the, uh, the intuitive marketing book. So since then, I've been kind of a lone wolf and, you know, engaged in, in, in different kinds of projects that interest me. And um, so I guess I'm on my next 11-year cycle. I, yeah, I hope I've... I make it the whole 11 years, but I haven't yeah, yeah. made it yet. Yeah. It sounds like you're about, um, well, you're nearly, nearly um, 11 years. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully this one might um last longer because it's so interesting and enjoyable and like you say it gives you the the freedom to pursue your interests well there's an infinite depth of things to learn um mm. just in general the, the the research on on the brain and uh the ways in which we respond to the world around us not just marketing and advertising but everything that we see and do um, is just fascinating and, and the science is moving at a breakneck pace. And so there's always new stuff going on that can be applied to many different areas of human activity. So it's, mm. uh, you're right in the sense that the, the flow of interesting new things is, will never come to an end, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, what, what, um, I'd love to kind of start our marketing conversation with is this, idea that you know the traditional marketing seems to be i mean that the whole online space has probably contributed to this it's just so much noise out there so much uh, uh and people seem to try to out shout each other to stand out from that noise and get their message heard and yet the i mean my response to that and i'm i'm guessing i'm probably not unique in this is the louder somebody shouts, the more I'm inclined to kind of block out the noise and ignore it. So why do you think there's there's this um, still this tendency to um, do marketing in in this way that um, you know I, I've just got to shout my message louder or, or put it on more billboards if it's traditional advertising and and that'll get the message through as opposed to looking at it from the other side and, and understanding what people are looking for. Yes, I think, I think you've, you've very accurately described the situation. Um, and it's certainly what I was feeling when I started working on the ideas in intuitive marketing. I, uh, I had just kind of come to the point where I felt that the, 
the marketing and the advertising were were kind of overwhelming. Um, you know, an old statistic is that like back in the 70s, we were maybe subjected to 500 ads a day. And today with the internet and uh, and advertising everywhere, it's more like 5,000 a day. Hmm. And so it's like this onslaught. And uh, as I kind of started digging into attention and emotion and memory and all these cognitive factors that influence the way we respond to the world around us, um, I realized that uh, this this constant drive to, to, to be, uh, you know, to, I think the phrase is to rise above the clutter, right? To, yeah. to, uh, that, to, to see everybody else Everybody else is advertising as noise and mine as somehow a, a special and wonderful. Um, and so if I just talk louder, my viewers or my listeners will will figure out that I'm the one that they ought to be listening to. Mm. But what happens, in fact, is everybody's thinking that. And so you get a kind of a tragedy of the commons effect where each each marketer, each advertiser is trying to grab your attention and rise above the clutter of everybody else. Uh, but when everybody's doing that, you're just subjected to the onslaught. And what consumers do is they they filter it out and they ignore it, or they may actually respond negatively to it. And we know that both consciously and unconsciously, people are building sort of a, a normative models of everything that they encounter, either in marketing or in shopping or in actual consuming, and, and kind of having a, uh, almost like a temperature indicator that says, mm. I'm warm towards this or I'm cold towards this. And every one of those interactions kind of makes that temperature go up or down. And that then influences your next encounter with that product or brand. Uh, which then will have another effect, either up or down. And so if you want to understand how people actually absorb advertising, um, you come to realize that the the older models, um, you asked what, why, are, why do marketers hang on to them? Uh, one is that they've been relatively successful for years. It, it's not that traditional marketing doesn't work. It's that we can't predict when it will work and we don't understand when it doesn't work. And I think that's because marketers often think that it's doing something other than what it's really doing. So they think they're persuading people. But what they're probably really doing most of the time is they're conditioning people uh, at an unconscious level to have certain kinds of affective um, responses to their products or their brands. And this builds up over time. And it looks like persuasion because they define it that way. Do people go out and buy my product? Well, if you sell, um, you know, any, any kind of product that has, that has a market, has an audience, um, it's pretty hard to, you know, get everybody to stop buying your product. Hmm. So, you know, you assume that you're that you're doing the right thing, and of course, you're spending a lot of money, and the the marketing department has to uh, justify to the yeah. to the money guys, right? The senior management that they are uh, providing value 
return on investment. Um, and so it, it, it just kind of engages in uh, just kind of more of the same behavior. I think also we have an interesting situation that a lot of the people that are in senior positions in marketing today got there, you know, before many of these new techniques were, were developed or these new approaches. Um, and it's difficult to, to kind of relearn a lot of things. So we found when I was doing this uh, as a neuromarketing uh, consultancy that um, it's often a, a big hurdle to, to, to go from traditional marketing uh, insights and beliefs to some of these new ideas, which are often counterintuitive to what people thought was the right way to do things before. Hmm. Yeah, certainly counterintuitive, but at the same time, when you break it down, and certainly you've done that really well in, in your book, uh, it's uh, it it's a lot of common sense, and it's it kind of I I, I kind of think of it as um, if you put yourself in the potential consumer's shoes, understanding your dream customer and what what they're looking to achieve, and then aim to give them that experience at every touch point, then that that kind of really addresses what you're promoting, right? Um, what you say is that uh, I think one of the things that I really liked you, you sort of said in the book was that it's required that marketers ask new questions and then conduct marketing in new ways. So tell us a little bit more about those new questions and, and that new approach. Sure. Uh, what, I, what I discovered when, when I was out um, talking to clients and trying to sell neuromarketing studies um, was that people were really interested in these new methods, really interested in looking at brain waves, you know, and putting an EEG headset on people and, mm. and watching them, watching your ads uh, or other material that you're, that you're testing. Uh, but what I found was they, they tended to ask the same old questions and the same old questions are kind of the, you know, they go back to the, uh, to the door to door salesman days of the, the, the AIDA technique, you know, attention, interest, desire and action. And so they would ask, well, they would assume I really, you know, I want to have more attention than anybody else. So, so does this ad draw people's attention? And then they wanted to know, like, do people like it? And then they wanted to know, are people going to remember it? So those seem to be three pretty simple questions. Uh, but in fact, all three have layers of, of um, complexity to them. And you want to think about those things in different ways according to what your objectives are. So sometimes you want to have attention and sometimes you don't. This is very counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. That most advertising, I believe, works uh, when there is low or no attention paid to it. And it works through, as I mentioned, conditioning, priming, um, these unconscious learning processes. So that's why I dug into learning uh, memory and learning processes in the book, because I really needed to understand those to see how 
these experiences, these exposures we have to marketing and advertising, what do they do after they get in your brain? You know, after you after you've experienced it, what what happens next? And so attention, uh, sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's not good. Uh, emotion, liking, I found in my research is it, it's a kind of an ephemeral state that people can. There's lots of reasons why people can think they like something that's not really about the thing that they think they're liking. So that is to say, as we've seen from like behavioral economics, um, you may not like a $30 bottle of wine if it's sitting on the shelf next to a $10 bottle of wine. But if I then put a $90 bottle of wine on the other side, all of a sudden it looks good. All of a sudden I like it. So in um, several other ways in which liking can be manipulated, and, and it's also not very predictive. That's why I believe a part of the answer to the eternal marketing question, why do 80% of new products fail, is because people aren't really good at predicting how, how they're going to behave with regard to that product as compared to asking you, what do you think of this? you like it? Do you think you'll buy it? Oh, yeah, I, I think I'll buy it. Um, and then when it comes out on the market, um, nobody buys it. Uh, and memory is also much different than kind of traditional uh, thinking uh, would lead you to believe. Um, and this was one of the most fascinating things, was that um, there's explicit memory and there's implicit memory. Explicit memory is memorization. It's it's explicitly and deliber deliberatively trying to remember something. Like you try to remember a phone number, try to remember your social security number. These are explicit um, memory processes and, and those memories go into particular kind of parts of our memory systems. But a lot of the things that we learn uh, in, in the world, we learn uh, kind of inadvertently. And this is this is what implicit memory and implicit learning are all about. And when people learn implicitly, they don't learn facts and events. They don't memorize the content of an ad. They basically just file away. Does it seem like something that I would want to encounter in the future? If I came across this in the future, would I want to approach it or would I want to avoid it? And that's kind of the main thing that gets put into long-term memory. And also, there's classification processes where you classify it. What is it? It goes kind of with this stuff. It's, it's the same as this stuff or similar. It's very different than this stuff. All these processes occur unconsciously. Do you have an example of that um, intuitive learning or that... that um kind of by-the-by learning, as you put it, the, the, um, un that goes into the unconscious memory? Um, yeah. It's uh, basically what you learn when you're, when you're um, just kind of taking in what's around you, not necessarily paying attention to it and not kind of deliberately focusing on it. Is, is you learn a bunch of things that uh, Daniel Kahneman in his book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, calls natural assessments. 
So you learn things like, these are so basic that we don't even think about them. You learn mm -hmm. like how big it is. You learn how far away it is. You learn how heavy it is. But you also learn whether it's something that is going to be of value to you or maybe it's going to be uh, dangerous or something to avoid. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you also learn uh, what categories it's in. Um, and you learn things like its frequency. So we have like a little statistical engine in our brains that is basically keeping track of how often do we see these things. And we use that to determine whether something is novel or familiar. What is novelty? Novelty means I don't have a, I don't have something I can relate this to in my, in my memory banks. And it's new and it's innovative. And so I have to figure out how to deal with it. If it's familiar, I know a lot about it. I feel comfortable with it. Um, I've had experience with it. Um, maybe it's been positive or maybe it's been negative, but it is there as a kind of a statistical record. So those are the kind of things that we automatically encode. And I believe that a lot of advertising gets encoded in that way, that um, they, the frequency, the um, emotional tenor or tone, these kind of relatively vague and general things are what, are what we are constantly recording. And they then emerge again unconsciously when we're trying to make a decision. And sometimes we talk about having gut feelings or having a hunch or just a feeling that, what is this today? I'm so popular. <laughs> uh, sorry about that again. I, I thought he would get the message last time. Um, so uh, gut feelings, yes. And uh, or just a general sense, sometimes we don't even feel like we're making a decision. It just seems like there's just a natural thing to do. You walk up to the toothpaste shelf in the grocery store and there's 300 brands of toothpaste sitting there you know, right next to each other, what do you do? Well, you probably just go with, the, you know, what you usually buy. Hmm. Um, and that's a habitual buy. And that's based on all that experience that's kind of filed away that says, this is the toothpaste I use. I like the, I like the taste. I, uh, you know, my teeth seem to be clean enough. Um, and I go and get it. Uh, we've talked about attention. Um, in a situation like that, where you have a habitual buyer, you don't want that person to engage in too much attention. You want them to basically engage in the habitual behavior, which is almost like a procedural thing that you don't even think about. You just grab the product that you always grab. And if you're the owner of that product, the last thing you want that consumer doing is stopping and going, hmm, maybe I should try a different toothpaste this mm. time. But that's one of the things that attention can do. Um, so it, 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 you know, it kind of works. I think it works in that way. And that's kind of the basic of it. I tried to lay out some of the research, some of the really interesting experiments that have been done over the years that highlight how this, how this stuff uh, seems to actually work in people's brains. Hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. The, and the example of that toothpaste and the, and the buying process there it, it brings up in my mind the point you make in the book that 
marketing is actually part of the whole consumer cycle. It's not not just about the the point of convincing that consumer to buy my toothpaste. It's like once I've once I have that person as a regular buyer of my toothpaste, I still need to do marketing. I still need to consider marketing as part of their customer journey. And and one of the things that frustrates me a lot is that everybody or a lot of the businesses seem to be focused very much on just acquiring new customers and not paying attention to existing customers. And you know, as you say, when you draw attention to your product in a way that existing customers start to question, is there something else out there? Should I do some more research here rather than just simply continue with my habitual buying? Uh, then you can get into trouble, right? I mean, the classic example yeah. for me is that um, the internet service providers or the telephone companies, uh, you know, they put out these offers and they say, you know, 20% discount or whatever it might be for new customers, which is an attention-grabbing kind of offer. And if I'm an existing customer and I've done this, I've gone back to them, I've said, I'd like to go on that plan, please. And they say, no, no, it's only for, it's only for new customers. And, right, right. And so you're, you've been a loyal customer for so well. They, they don't say this, but the implication, of course, is you've been a loyal customer for so long. Um, you're penalised for being a loyal customer. And of course, at that moment, I'm then saying to myself, "I wonder what else is out there." So they've drawn that attention. <laughs> Not so loyal anymore. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes, those are uh, those. Those are the kind of decisions that marketers seem to make um and i think they relate to this kind of short-term long-term uh difference that you that that you mentioned earlier you know i think one of the things that the the internet has done is it, it, has, it has eliminated the gap between um you know the the desire to acquire something and the process of actually acquiring it so you don't have to jump in the car and drive down to the store anymore. You just like hit the hmm. the uh, the one click buy on Amazon and it's on its way to you. And in some cases, it'll be there the same day, the next day. Um, so this tends to, I think, shrink the marketer's focus down to like conversion. How do I convert a browser into a buyer? And that's a very short-term transactional focus. And it's kind of like your example. Um, you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw a 20% discount to try to grab this new buyer. Um, and I'm not looking at how that's gonna affect my existing buyers. Hmm. Uh and and so I'm looking at short-term uh transactional immediate conversion issues and calling that marketing, or in my book, that's sales. That's not marketing. Marketing is about the longer term relationship. And, and I think the key to that is understanding, as you said, what is it that is driving your customers? What do they want out of their lives that your product can help them achieve? Or that your brand signifies to them? 
so that they want to be associated with your brand. Not, how do I get this person to do something that they didn't really want to do? <laughs> you know, which is buy this there on the site, they're looking at shoes or clothes or whatever. Um, and I want buy, buy, buy. You know, how do I get you to buy? 20% off, 30% off. Oh, if you do it within five minutes, you know, to go down the whole uh, Cialdini list of weapons of influence, right? Scarcity, authority, uh, social proof, you know, that whatever it takes. And um, I think that's alienating. I think that we're just overwhelmed by it. And not every brand is going to become a great brand um, that people feel a loyalty to because it represents some values that they share. You know, a lot of economic life is 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 pretty prosaic and simple. Um, we don't we don't love a lot of brands, uh, but we do sort of love a few, or we feel a kind of a relationship with them. And those are the ones that don't have to engage in persuasive advertising. Um, the example that I use, which is kind of a polarizing one, but that's why I like using it, <laughs> is is Disney Disneyland. When I was, uh, I think I was six or seven years old, when Disneyland in Southern California opened up, my, my dad uh, and mom took us, me and my brother, to Disneyland. And we didn't have very many vacations. And so this was a big deal. My dad owned a store, and so we had to actually close the store in order to like have a vacation. And we were lived in the Central Valley of California, so it's about a three or four hour drive down to LA. So we went to Disneyland and it was like uh, just a magical experience hmm. for a six year old kid. And we went back a few times. And then when I had my children, first thing we did was we took them to Disneyland. We went to some of the same spots, took pictures in front of the same, huh. uh, you know, things, uh, spots. And and now my daughter just had a, a child, my first grandson, and we're already planning our first trip to Disneyland with him. Now, yeah. Disneyland uh, alienates some people, you know, and I understand for good reasons. But for me, it is so tied up with these deeply emotional family memories hmm. that, you, you know, the brand is, it, it just has a special place. And, um, you know, they can sucker me into a Disneyland deal just about any time, any way. Um, and so yeah, that's, well, it's kind of the, that's kind of the ideal, I think. Yeah. I guess there's a, a big point there and it's around that emotional connection. And I know, I mean, my experience of Disneyland, I haven't taken my kids to Disneyland and they're adults now. Um, because obviously it would be, would have been a, a rather large trip for us, but I I certainly grew up um, watching the Disneyland show regularly. That used to run on Sunday nights on our television here, and when I was a young kid, that used to be one of the things that we were allowed to watch. We weren't allowed to watch a lot of television, but that was one of the things we were allowed to watch, mm -hmm. and it was always fascinating because they'd have this uh, whole eclectic range of things from um adventure stories with you know geared to young young people or they'd have cartoons or they'd have nature stories you know so it was always different things or they'd have um 
uh, interesting science stories, which I was a, a kind of a science geek as a young kid as well. So there'd always be this different stuff. So I, I was a kind of a Disney fan from very young. And then later on in life, when I was traveling a lot to the US, I had um, a time when I um, missed a connecting flight in LA and it meant that I had to stay a day in LA to get the next flight back to, back home to Melbourne. And I thought, well, what will I do with that day? And I thought, oh, I'll go to Disneyland. And I spent a day in Disneyland on my own when my kids were home. They were probably 10 and 8 or so at the time. And I had a ball, but, you know, the whole time I was thinking, oh, I, I just so wish I could bring my kids along there. So there is that emotional connection, isn't it? It's sort of from the experiences that we've had and, and um, from living those experiences in, in that moment. Right. And it gets back to your point about, about the consumer cycle that the, the, that, that kind of connection doesn't happen from watching an ad mm. or, or, or even of, you know, a, a whole campaign. You have to experience, in that case, the product is the experience. The consumption is consuming the, the experience of the, of the family at, at the park. But as that, you have to kind of cycle through all of that to build up these memories, to build up these, uh, these emotional connections. And it doesn't have to be, uh, if you think of any other brand, if you just think of well, what are the top brands that like come to mind? Basically, they just start coming to mind and you ask, what is it about them? Why, why do they come to mind? Um, you think of Nike, you think of, of Starbucks, you think of Apple, Google. Um, you know, these brands have a, have a kind of a, it's not always, you know, warm and fuzzy mm. emotions, but they have, they have connections. You know, for me, for example, uh, Google has been, uh, because I'm a researcher and I'm a, I'm a scientist at heart. Um, and I noticed that my buddy Will Leach mentioned when you asked about what's your innovation tool, he mentioned Google Scholar. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's a good answer. Um, it's, it's where I can go to have the whole world of knowledge um, at my fingertips, literally. And, um, you know, that creates a relationship with the brand, even though I know there's a lot of things to criticize about mm. Google. You know, and I can separate the, the personal feelings from the kind of social and political, societal implications and so on. But I have to acknowledge that those feelings are there. And even something I tell a story, I'll just tell you one, one more quick one. Um, for, oh, gee, since I was about eight years old, I, I, I was discovered I was uh, blind as a bat, I needed, uh, I couldn't see the blackboard in front of the class. So I got glasses and I had glasses all my life until about five years ago when my um, uh, ophthalmologist convinced me to get uh, a, a cataract surgery. Hmm. And so I had these new lenses put in and the new lenses were set to have you know, to, to, so I could see clearly without glasses. First time in my life. So, you know what the first thing I did was? I'm like 65 year old man, okay? All of a sudden I don't have to wear glasses anymore. What's the first thing I did? I went out and bought a pair of Ray-Bans. <laughs> now, 
do I think I'm Tom Cruise or, you know, or I just, I just want, it was just was something that I just wanted to be cool, to feel cool. Yeah. And Ray-Bans are cool. Hmm. And so I went out and bought them and, uh, it, it's just, that's a, to me, that's an example of how, uh, you know, we use brands to, 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 to be extensions of, of our identity, you know, of who we want to be, even though it's a kind of a foolish idea. I acknowledge it because we have a lot of foolish ideas, um, but those are the kind of things that, that motivate us, you know, when we get down to it. Well, that's fascinating because that, that kind of um, highlights what you were saying earlier, that it's, it's a memory because clearly uh, because Ray-Ban don't do prescription glasses, you were probably ignoring all the messaging all that time absolutely uh, and I yet never it, had yeah and yet at somewhere it was obviously being filed away unconsciously in your memory because as soon as you could um, see in the distance now you didn't need prescription glasses you you That's straight away went yeah. <laughs> yeah it's amazing it's silly but i it's a i think it's a great example um a little self-deprecating but but it, it makes the point, you know, that, mm. um, and, and, and another, another big part of my discovery and this, this, uh, this kind of research journey that I've been on is this idea of the importance of aspirations and identity enhancing things that enhance our sense of self mm. are so important to human beings. Well, one of the things one of the things that brings up and and you talk about this in the book and i thought this is really fascinating because it's something that i um you know going back into my corporate career i used to have these conversations around what's a want and what's a need and how do you address that in the marketing and how do you differentiate and what's the uh what's the difference what's the important there and and you talk about you know desire and compulsion and how they move us differently and and Tell us a little bit more about you know how you see the difference between wants and needs, and is it important that they're different, and how does that tie in with that aspirational and self-affirmation goals that we all have? Yes, definitely. Um, yeah, this was this was really one of the the most fun parts of the book because um, when I got there. It's an interesting process writing this book because at every point I sort of thought, well, I'm going to I'm going to run into a brick wall here pretty soon. <laughs> I'm like, I'm kind of, you know, saying all these outrageous things and like, I'm going to find a contradiction here at some point and I'm just going to put this away and, you know, get on with my life. But I kept finding as, as I each topic kind of sent me to the next topic and then I was able to see that there was a story there that aligned with the story that I was that I was telling so far. So that what got me really excited that this book actually might end up being something was when I got to wants and needs. And um, I found myself being sort of feeling like a taxonomist, you know. Uh, so what is the difference between a want and a need? And I decided that, that a want is largely discretionary. If we use the word, I'm look at the way we use the language. We talk about wants, I want something. I use the example of a new car. I want a new car versus I need a new car. Now to me, these are very 
different things. To want a new car means I have some aspiration. I want, you know, um, it's something that I don't have that I would like to have. But I think a want implies that maybe I, you know, I could live without it. Hmm. I can live without that Ferrari. I'd really like to have it, but uh, my bank account says no. So I can live without it. But needs are different. Needs are compulsions. So needs have to be satisfied. So the basic need is the physiological need. You get hungry, you get thirsty, you get sleepy. Your body demands that you engage some behavior to, to, to close that gap between how you're feeling and how you want to feel. And then I found that psychological needs tended to work very much in the same way. That we have, we have, we also have psychological needs and they are these needs for self-esteem, these needs for belonging, um, these needs to, 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 to be in control of your life, the basic fundamental needs. And if they go out of whack, people engage in various kinds of behavior, sometimes constructive and sometimes destructive to kind of get back to, a to a balance with regard to that need. And, um, and so they are, those are, those are very different kinds of things. Now, most marketing tries to find a want or tries to create a want, um, often by telling you that you're, something's not quite right in your life, right? Mm -hmm. Your clothes aren't white enough, or your teeth aren't white enough, or, um, your car isn't sexy enough. And, and you want to, you want to, kind of rebalance that and so go buy my product and that will that will get you back to you know homeostasis <laughs> um but equally you can look you can look out you can look forward uh and instead of trying to convince people that they're that they're broken and need to be fixed you can say hey i know what you're trying to accomplish in your life and here let me help you Here's how my brand helps you, uh, or how my brand reflects the same values that, that you're trying to achieve in your life. That to me seems to be a very different kind of sell and a very different kind of message. And one that can be delivered in a way that's not adversarial, but is actually, you know, collaborative. Also, it's the kind of thing that I'm more inclined to want to listen to. Hmm. So, Go back to my Disneyland example. I, you know, if, it, if an ad for some Disney property comes on TV, I watch it um, because I'm interested in it. Uh, I use a term called aligned intent that that the marketing message is in line aligned with the intentions that I have at that moment. And that's when I'm receptive to the marketing message. That's when per persuasion works. But if I'm not in that state, then your marketing message is kind of, you know, just goes over my head or yeah. in one ear and out the other. Yeah, um, it's to the so noise. In that mm. sense, that's why I think there's, there's an opportunity here for marketers to be more engaged with uh, what their consumers really want to accomplish in their lives and say, Here's how we contribute to that. Hmm. Yeah, so that that raises the point, of course, that you need to really understand who who your dream customer is, who your ideal customer is, and um, how or well, what their aspirations are and what their goals are. 
That is so important. And that's actually um, another thing that I really appreciated in, uh, in Will's book uh, was his focus on the, the different kinds of, you know, we, we marketers like segment everybody by demographics all the mm. time. Mm. But there's also kind of like psychological and neurological segmentations that are very relevant to how you talk to people. So uh, Will talks about this, this idea of regulatory fit of promotion-oriented people and prevention-oriented people. And they respond to things very differently. A, re a promotion-oriented person wants to know, like, what does, this, what does this get me? What does this benefit me? A prevention-oriented person wants to know, what, what disaster does this help me avoid? Yeah, yeah. Right? And, and if you understand who your ideal customer is, or maybe you have different segments and you want to talk to them differently. Um, there are people that are uh, these kind of basic kind of psychological temperament mm. sorts of things, um, like prevention, promotion, uh, uh, introverts, extroverts, um, people that are cheap and people that like to spend money. I, I can never remember where the word spend thrift is the person that like spend more money or less money. But that person and whoever the opposite person is, hmm. um, these are all these are all kind of mental segmentations, um, and and also it comes back. I was having a conversation in the last episode of the podcast, and uh, actually it was the previous one, but anyway, that's not so important. the um, The distinction he made was people who value time more than money or people who value money more than time yeah. and and so people who value time more than money if you can give them time or show them a way to basically get more time they will spend money for that for that benefit whereas um, the people who value money more than time uh, and you try to sell them here's a, here's a time-saving technique uh, they won't spend money on that because they place more money on the uh, more value on the money. So, uh, for that person, you've got to provide a different benefit. And if you send the wrong, if you send the the right message to the wrong person, you you've just squandered whatever you spent on that <laughs> yeah. on that effort because it'll go it'll go right past them. That's right. Hmm. All right. Now, one of the other things you you talk about there's a whole chapter there on ethical marketing, and I think what what you've just touched on in terms of understanding what motivates the customer and working together with them to address their needs and aspirations is, is in my mind, the concept behind really ethical marketing. So um, what I'm curious about, though, you know, this whole idea of marketing as persuasion, how do you reconcile that with the idea of being ethical about marketing? Right. Well, that... That is a very um, interesting problem. And the way I ended up kind of slicing it is that, um, you know, you can sort of imagine, uh, you know, kind of purely rational argumentation, you know, the Socratic dialogue kind of at, mm. at one extreme. And then the other extreme is uh, I've got this gun to your head. And if you don't do what I want you to do, you're not going to shoot you. Coercion. So rational argument to coercion. What's in the middle? Well, what's in the middle is is persuasion. It's it's various types of manipulation. So all marketing is manipulation. 
but there are uh, kind of ethical types of manipulation and, and unethical. And I think the line is, if I engage in persuasive techniques that are designed to help you live your life better, make you wealthier, make you healthier, um, then that's, that's an ethical um, expression of, of persuasion. Like right now, we're in the middle of this uh, problem with vaccine hesitancy hmm. around the world. It's, it's becoming a pretty big problem here in the U.S. because we have a lot of people running around here that think it's a political issue and they don't want to get vaccinated because, um, uh, you know, it violates their political beliefs um, or their religious beliefs in some, in some cases. Uh, so, you know, how do you, um, you, you, you want to be able to convince those people that they need to do that because it's for their own benefit, it's for the benefit of their communities, their families, their society. Um, so a, a certain degree of ethical uh, persuasion, manipulation, if you will, to use the negative word, um, I think is, is appropriate and ethical in that, in that circumstance. What isn't ethical is when you manipulate people for your benefit, but against their own interests. Mm. So if, if you're selling cigarettes, uh, you know, or some other product that's, that, that's basically damaging to people's health, um, then I think you've got, a, you've got a real problem in terms of what you're trying to get people to do. Uh, so, so the line is, is there, I think, in terms of what, you know, what's the purpose of your, of your marketing effort? Is your pur purpose to get somebody to do what you want them to do, even though it may not be good for them? Or is it to help them do things that they, that they would want to do, um, but they just need a little nudging hmm. uh, in order to get there? And so that's where you get into that whole issue about nudging and behavioral interventions, uh, which my pal Will Leach is, 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 is the master of, um, you know, how, how you set up those kinds of situations. And what I worry about, what I talk about in the book was I notice if you go, if, if you, if you go onto Amazon and you, and you search the book section for influence, how to influence people. Um, you'll, you'll see lots and lots of books and that are really kind of say, well, people are puppets and I'm going to teach you the tricks and tips, how you can get people to do anything you want, how you can get them to dance at the end of your puppet strings. And that is basically dehumanizing. And I think yeah. once you go down that road, um, you're, you're going to find yourself in a, in a situation where you're going to be ethically challenged. And I, I tend to think, my own experience has been that that kind of tends to, we think of it as an individual issue, but it tends to be an organizational issue. So marketing organizations, the leadership of marketing organizations are the ones that set the tone. Why are we here? At one extreme, you have like the boiler rooms, you know, like in uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, right? The, 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 the always be uh, closing, mm. right? Um, call the little old ladies up and get them to 
you know, invest their life savings in whatever little Ponzi scheme we've got going. Um, and you, you, you're, you're not only not helping your customers improve their lives and their humanity, you're actually, you know, you're actually having a negative impact. Um, but if you look at people like, like, um, Richard, um, Thayer Thaler, the, um, the, uh, behavioral economist, um, you know, who talks about nudging, who wrote some of the, the, the best books on, on nudging and behavioral interventions. You know, they say that, that, that the purpose is to, is to help people make good decisions. If you're helping people make good decisions that are good for them, then, um, you know, I think you have some leeway in how you, how you do that. But ultimately, if you betray people, they will figure it out eventually. It, it's a, it's a, it's a losing proposition. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that's why you know many businesses die because they they don't treat their customers with respect. Hmm. I think the the idea of treating it as will help you make the best decision for you. I mean, first of all, you need to know who's the dream client and what what are their needs, what are their aspirations, and so on. And are we a match, or is our product a match? But then helping them make a good decision, I think, is is really good marketing, and and particularly if you take the approach of helping them make a decision, regardless of whether that's a yes, I'm going to buy your product or service or no. Um, in fact. You know where people say no, and you say, "Good, that's the best decision." Um, and and what can I do to support you and move you to where you know what you need is, or um, connect you with with the right product or service, even though it's not mine. Um, that to me, that that's where it's it's an ethical marketing scenario. And and we who sell those uh, kinds of services know that's the hardest thing to do to tell a client no you really don't need you really don't need what i'm offering yeah uh but ironically it's often the the the, the kind of indicator that that people will refer to later on and say yeah i i trust these guys because you know they when when, when there wasn't a fit they told me there wasn't a fit mm -hmm. Um, That's right, uh, and and they they may in fact become advocates because they may go to other people and say, "Hey, um, you should speak with um, Steve. You know, he's he's got what you need. He wasn't a fit for me, but he's an ethical person because he pointed me in a different direction and told me he wasn't a fit. So he will, you know, he will help you regardless of whether you decide it's a fit or not." Yeah, I think that's a position we'd all like to be in that we have a reputation like that hmm. well this has been wonderful steve i could go on for ages talking about the psychology of marketing and human behavior it's a fascinating topic and we can go deep but we don't want to expose everything in the book we want to leave some for people to read in the book so i think it's a good time now to move on to the buzz which is our innovation round and it's designed to help our audience who are primarily leaders and innovators in their field with some tips from your experience. So there's five scripted questions and hopefully your answers will inspire the listener to go and do something really awesome today as a result. 
Well, uh, no, no pressure. No pressure at all. No. What's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to be more innovative? Um, well, I think innovation is is a team sport. I think that's the most mm. important thing. Um, I think it's important to be humble. It's important to realize that you're not the only genius in the room. Um, it's important to listen to your customers, talk to them regularly. And it's important to hire people that are smarter than you and listen to them. And I think that's the way to, to, uh, to continually surprise yourself, which is what you have to do if you want to be innovative. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. And I love, you know, you're not the only genius in the room. So, um, look, look out for the other geniuses and, and certainly hiring good people is, is great tip as well. Okay, now what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? Well, I had to uh, go back to my um, management consulting days uh, to find a good answer to this question. And um, what I found really worked well, and I developed this at a couple of companies, was the idea of an innovation pipeline process. Mm. So this is not so much uh, an individual thing, but how does a company, how does a corporation maintain um, a focus on innovation? When, of course, in its day-to-day -day business, it's, it's exploiting the products and the brands that it has, and that's how it, that's how it makes most of its money, but it's gotta have a, it's gotta have a pipeline, an innovation pipeline. And so we developed this idea of, of, of creating an innovation pipeline process. And it basically involves um, really treating innovation in the company as if you're a, a venture capitalist. And so you allow people in the company to draw up business plans and to make literal pitches to maybe it's the corporate strategy group or you'll have a group that manages this innovation pipeline process. And so you have business plan type um, uh, initiations of projects. You then get senior approval, buy-in, financial commitment, and then you properly staff, fund, house the innovation project. You time box it. You say these are going to be the dates at which you're going to report back. Um, you incubate it, you develop it, you support it, and then you make a decision. You either launch or you kill. And then you integrate it back into the into the main main line of the business, and you have this kind of constant flow. And you're you're pulling in ideas from everywhere, from customers, from employees, from academics, from uh, uh, scientific you know areas that are relevant to your business, and um, and you just keep that moving through the company, and that creates a kind of a lifeline for innovation. I found that. It worked really well in companies where we implemented it. Mm. Yeah, I love that idea. And it's it's kind of really addresses this key question of how do you maintain the existing product line and, and keep supporting that and um, you know, generating revenue from that, but at the same time um, developing that those potential new innovations, some of which may actually disrupt that that existing business model. Right, right, hmm. right. 
And that, that needs to be a part of the process of yeah. deciding whether this is something we, you know, we want to do or we don't want to do. We have to look at the, at the big picture. So yeah. that's why it is. Innovation is a senior management responsibility. Hmm. Um, yeah. It has to be seen that way. It has to be uh, uh, celebrated, rewarded. Um, but, you know, it never, it never um, sort of dis disrupts the, the, the main, the mainstream business. It, you need to go out into this pipeline and then come back in to the main business in order to make it work. Hmm. Yeah, love it. Okay, now, do you have a favorite resource you use most often? Um, well, I think maybe the answer to the question, it, uh, I do have a tool that I use that I've been using for years. I'm having some problems with it recently, but um, I'll still recommend it, and that's Evernote, uh, which is which is a great tool for um, collecting articles, uh, any any kind of thing that 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 you want to save, um, uh, web uh, reporting pieces, and if it's got a good web clipper, so that's the key thing—a web clipper hmm. that it'll you know you go on a web page, you say I want to I want to keep this, so you clip it, you put it into Evernote, you tag it with your various categories. I have probably ten thousand things in my Evernote. Uh, data file um, at this point, and they're all cross-tabbed. They're, um, you know, they relate to each other in various ways. And after you reach a certain critical mass, you, you discover that, oh, there's this thing that I read six months ago that I forgot about that is very relevant to this thing that I just read and thought was really interesting. Uh, and then trying to put them all back, uh, trying to, to match them up. Um, and so you get these these kind of lateral connections hmm. and that helps you come up i think with some with some innovative ideas because most innovations are you know taking two known things and Combining. putting it together mm -hmm. yeah and evernote's a really good way to kind of it's it's a vert, uh, it's a um, pc or a computer-based notebook that you can as you say capture all these things and it's pretty easy with the web clippers i mean i love these web clippers that allow you to Put the things in those notebooks. Now, and yeah, one thing. Hmm. They get rid of the ads. And I should say, just to be, just just to not send anybody um, down uh, the wrong rabbit hole. Evernote is having a a lot of problems these days. They did a a major upgrade that is a complete disaster. Uh, it was such a disaster that they issued the old version. They call it Evernote Legacy. And I actually use Evernote Legacy because Evernote is unusable at this point. Oh right. But I'm ten thousand I'm ten thousand notes in, so yeah. it's not easy to switch. There are some other competitors that are very good out there as well. So do a little research mm. if you're looking for that kind of tool. And you can find one that works if you're starting from scratch. Uh you might wanna try one of the other ones. Yeah. yeah. Evernote maybe. Well, I used Evernote for many years, but I switched probably about two years ago. I switched over to Notion, um, uh -huh. which is um, it's a different style of thing, but it kind of suits what I the way I use that kind of notebook. It suits it right. a lot better. Well, it's so, a, it's a, 
is that whole thing about familiarity and yeah. novelty. You know, it's like being familiar and knowing how to use it, not having to think about it is worth a whole lot. Mm. Uh, having to, you know, learn something new is yeah. like, you know, and particularly, yeah, as possible. And particularly transitioning to something new when you've got you know, tens of thousands of records there already. That, that's a big yeah. challenge, yeah. Okay, now what's the best way to keep a, a project on track? Oh, God. Um, well, it's, all you can do is scope it out, timeline it in detail, put it all in a contract, get everybody to sign it. And I've also found that... Uh, you can control scope creep by putting a price tag on every uh, on every edition, hmm. and that will often cause the client to reconsider whether they really need yeah. um, that new thing. So that's that's pretty much what I've done over the years. Yeah, that, that's I like the idea of price tagging every edition, and it sort of gets them to think about, well, do I really need that? Is it worth that much? <laughs> hmm. And also, um, like I'd, I'd add to that, not just a dollar price tag, but also a time. So, yeah, we can do that extra thing, but it'll delay the project by three months, for example. You can have it fast, you can have it good, or you can have it cheap. <laughs> you can have all three. All three, yeah. All right. Now, what's the number one thing you think anyone needs to do to differentiate themselves? Or Well, I thought... Um... I wanted to maybe tell you a, a short, quick story um, with a somewhat different uh, approach to answering this question. Mm. I found that um, if you are, I'm going to talk specifically about if you are in a consulting business, if you're in a service business, if you are in any kind of business where you know more about what you're doing than the customer knows what you're doing. I found that a lot of neuromarketing vendors that showed up early on tried to differentiate themselves by saying, we have secret knowledge. We have a secret sauce. We have a secret formula. We can't tell you what it is, but we can tell you whether people are going to like your ad or whether they're going to buy your product. Um, then there were other companies that came along and said, we don't have any secret knowledge. All of our work is based on, on established academic research. Um, you know, take like EEG. If a vendor comes up to me and says, I've got a new way of using EEG that nobody's ever figured out before, but I can't tell you what it is, but I'm going to charge you $100,000 for the, you know, to, to do to the project. Um, you know, you're probably going to, you're probably going to reject that offer. Um, and that is what happened. So a lot of these companies, they thought they're going to be so impressed with us. We come in with our white coats and we're neuroscientists and PhDs up the wazoo. And uh, they're just going to be so impressed. They're just going to hand over the money. Well, surprise, surprise, it doesn't work that way. That's not the way to differentiate that kind of business. What we found was that what people wanted to hear was, that you were using established methods, you were willing to sit down and show me the research, even though I probably won't read it and I won't understand it, but I want to see it. Hmm. I want to touch it. And, and that you, your differentiator is that 
you will be authentic, you will be transparent, you will be fast, you will be fair in terms of pricing. So in other words, it's not what you do that's your differentiator, it's how you do it. And it took the neuromarketing field a long time to realize that that was the trick with regard to uh, selling innovative, novel services to people who had not had experience with those services before. Hmm. But that's what came to mind when I when I saw that that question. I don't know how to differentiate myself. But... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I love the comparison, and and you're right. I mean, there's a lot of fields where people say we have this proprietary technique or proprietary technology or you know, secret know-how, um, and and I and there's a lot of marketing information that goes out. I, I, let me share the secrets to something or other. And I always think, well, if they're secrets and you're sharing them, they're no longer secrets. So how value how valuable are they? And and also if you know, if if you're keeping them secret until I pay for them, how do I know that I'm actually getting value out of them? So yeah, yeah it's kind of like no, you do put up we this would go, We would go to some really, really big companies. Um I don't want to, you know, mention any names, but you know the biggest advertisers and marketers in the world, and and they would say like, hey, if you think I'm going to give you money and and uh, direct my business on the basis of your research without you telling me what the heck you did and how you got the results that you got, I, I'm just not going to do it. Mm. I mean, these guys are too smart for that. Yeah. And so they want they want a partner. Um, they don't want you know a guru. Hmm. So that I think that tends to work for that for that kind of business, and that's the kind of business that I've been in for a couple of decades, and it's exhausting. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Steve. This has been absolutely fabulous. Now, where can people uh, find out more about you? Get a hold of your book, the uh, or each of your books, the Dummies Guide to Neuromarketing and and the Intuitive Marketing book, and also maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared today. Oh uh, yeah, well the the books are on Amazon, and uh, uh, the Dummies book is a is a Dummies book, <laughs> um, and uh, it's 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 been pretty popular, you know. I think I think it's a really good book, and the, the kind of the dummies marketing is kind of a two-edged sword, you know. It's like some people say, "Oh, it's a book for dummies." I'm not a dummy. Um, other people though realize that some dummies books are, you know, richer than than others. It's not it's not goldfish for dummies. It's it's neuromarketing for dummies. Um, so I think it's still and it's still pretty up to date. Um, so I'm on, uh, intuitive marketing. I, I published, uh, myself. So it's, it's on Amazon. You can get it in hardback or paperback or, or, uh, um, you know, uh, ebook, uh, Kindle. And, uh, I'm on, uh, Twitter at, uh, what am I on Twitter? At SJ Genco. I'm on LinkedIn. And I have a intuitiveconsumer.com uh, website and a blog there that I, I blog pretty regularly. I also have been 
posting a lot of stuff on Medium recently. So a, a lot of um, uh, things that are sort of excerpts from the book or variations, uh, uh, extensions of things in the book are, have shown up in, in, in articles on Medium so people can find stuff there. Um, mm. But basically, I just try to get my work out there in all these various channels. Great. Well, we'll um, we'll post all those links in the show notes so people can click through and investigate further and maybe get a hold of the book. And um, yeah, I look forward to to hearing certainly what what people take out of the insights that you provide. So, do you have some parting advice for our listener today? Parting advice. Um. You know, just, uh, I, I think, you know, people have to, marketers, marketers need to give some of these new techniques a chance. They have to, uh, you know, you just, you need to give this stuff uh, um, a chance. And uh, there are some real uh, valuable insights to be had. And you, you know, you have to come at it. Like I said, it works on both sides of the fence. You have to come at it with, with a little humility and and in a in a curiosity. And and that's that's always how you know how you progress is uh, is through this process of of you know discovering new stuff and not being afraid of it and testing it and incorporating it and. That's how you succeed overall. All marketing is manipulative. Hmm. All right. Well, thanks, Steve. Uh, finally, then, who else should I get on this show and why? Well, I wanted to mention to you um, a, uh, a fellow Aussie uh, named Peter Steidel, S-T-E-I-D-L. Peter was a co-author uh, with me on Neuromarketing for Dummies. But he's a prolific author, and he's written several books on neuro, uh, with kind of neuro-related looks at various marketing and branding issues. Uh, some of the most interesting stuff that he's done that I think you'd find interesting is, is he's done a lot of work with brand archetypes. So using these kind of, uh, you know, archetype characters and, and how those relate to brands heroes mm. um and uh, uh he's really done deep uh, dive in his kind of Jungian sort of business you know with these 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 archetypical uh, yeah. um, ways in which we organize things and applying that to branding fascinating he's also done work on shopping and and uh you know the brand essence and brand image and and also of course all the neuromarketing stuff Mm, and you can talk to him in your in your own time zone. Time zone, yeah. He's from Melbourne. So, okay, well, we'll uh, get an introduction to Peter from you and reach out to him, and um, maybe we can even see if we can do an in-person episode wow. conversation, which would that. be exciting. I haven't done one of those for a while, since pre-pandemic, I think. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm. All right. Well, thanks so much, Steve, for sharing your insights with us so generously today. I've really enjoyed this. Um, you know, we probably need to schedule another time where we can dig deeper into some of those aspects. But I think it's a good thing to leave people curious enough to go.
go read your books and your articles and, and explore that some more. I certainly encourage people to explore those ideas, particularly around the idea of really understanding what your your ideal customers, your dream customers, what their aspirations and wants and needs are and how you can best serve them. Um, and, and then look at applying the neuromarketing techniques you speak about in terms of presenting your message. So thanks so much. I've had a ball. I wish you all the best for the future and let's stay in touch. Thank you. Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you enjoyed that really engaging conversation with Steve and took something away from this wonderfully valuable conversation. Steve's insights into behavioral and intuitive marketing are fascinating and provide wonderful guidance to making marketing human again and focused, of course, on the transformation for our clients. I'd love to know what you took away from Steve's episode. Go to the blog post, comment below the blog post about your big takeaway. You can find that blog post at innovabears.co forward slash Steve Jenko. That is S-T-E-V-E-G-E-N-C-O. All lowercase, all one word, innovabears.co forward slash Steve Jenko. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Steve, as well as links to the Intuitive Consumer website, to the book Intuitive Marketing, to Steve's social media pages and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. Now, if you like this episode and you think it can help other people, then please don't keep it to yourself. Share it with those people that it might help. Tag me in on that share because I will personally reach out to you to say thank you for spreading this valuable information to more people who it might help. Steve suggested that we have a conversation with Dr. Peter Steidel of NeuroThinking on a future Innova Buzz podcast episode. So, Peter, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the Innova Buzz podcast, courtesy of Steve Jenko. Tune in again to the next episodes of the Innova Buzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including author of Done by Noon. Dave Ruel, and author of Disruption Off, Terry Jones. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating. 